Revelation. And I want to dig right in. Um, someone has mentioned earlier that, you know, I, I tend to talk fast sometimes, and I do for two reasons. Number one, I get excited. But honestly, the greater one is that within our short time frame, I usually have a lot that I'm trying to cover in a short time, uh, and things are always coming to mind that, oh, I could say this as well, I could say this as well. And so I'm going to do my best to withhold some of those things tonight. Um, but we'll just go through as much as we can. And if we need to come back for a part two next week, we have that freedom to do that. Um, but let's go right into Revelation chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Revelation 4 verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, as I typically do. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne with a rainbow that had appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And, a day, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So glance with me back up to the top of the passage then. Always important that we would read through it, but let's walk through it now. There's a shift here, and I hope you sense it now. It's been a few weeks, but think back to what we did in the first three chapters. Very different from what we're reading right now, right? And so there's a shift. Look at verse 1 there. He says, after this... After what we've seen in those first three chapters, he says, I looked and behold, and then he begins speaking. So this is a shift of scenes, a new scene. Think of it almost like what you'd see in a motion picture in a movie. This is a new scene. We're moving from these letters to the seven churches now to the heavenly throne room. He's sort of been taken up in the spirit is the language he uses. As we get to verses two and three, we see the most magnificent display of beauty. John is drawing on the most uh, breathtaking language that he has at his disposal. Everything that he can say to, to describe what he is seeing, and even then he would say it is insufficient to describe what he's seeing before him in the heavenly throne room. If we had time, we could look through a ton of Old Testament echoes here in verses 2 through 3. 
You go read Daniel chapter 7, maybe this week you'll see a lot of echoes from Daniel chapter 7, which is likewise a vision of the heavenly throne room. Uh, but you'll also see Ezekiel. We're gonna, I'm going to reference that a couple different times. Um, you, see the, you see Joel here. We see Ezekiel. Um, and so among these, uh, among these Old Testament books, um, John is drawing, and ultimately it's through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but there are these echoes from the Old Testament. And again, we're not surprised by that for several reasons. Number one, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old, and there's no New Testament, so to speak, when John is writing this. The Old Testament is their scriptures. Now, the, Old, the New Testament is existed in, in different letters and writings here and there, but it's not been collected in terms of what we would have as a, as a Bible, as a single book. But these are the scriptures of God's people, and so he's referencing them, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When it describes John here as in the Spirit, you see that there in those first few verses? It reveals that really he's about to receive revelation like one of the prophets of old. And also looking back to the Old Testament. That was often the, the idea when, what we're going to see later in Isaiah chapter 6, or we see in Ezekiel and so on, that, that, that God would speak and reveal in this really profound way. And so this is, this is this, the scripture showing us that God is about to reveal something very profound to John. What is it about this scene, these first two to three verses, that would have been so valuable to John's audience? What is it? As we look back, this, this scene in the throne, once I was in the spirit, behold, a throne stood before me in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat on the throne had appearance of Jasper, Carnelian, and he's given this, this profound uh, description here. What, what would have been so significant to the original hearers of this? Think about this. Again, this is, this is honestly, this is often going to be the answer as we go through Revelation. In society here, which was absolutely true of them, that, and they, were, they were outcasts. Christians had no privilege. They were outcasts. They were scorned, um, even by their own ethnic brethren, the Jews, they were kicked out, but then the Romans certainly didn't like them because they didn't worship the Roman gods. And so in a society where they're the outcasts, in a society where they feel like wickedness seems to be triumphant, um, they're reminded that God is on the throne even now. It's not merely that God will be on the throne one day, that God will eventually become king. No, no, he rules even now. And so to a beleaguered, to an oppressed, to a persecuted people, this is encouraging. That regardless of what, for us, regardless of what we see in this passing world, God reigns. And that is the theme throughout the book of Revelation. God reigns. Yes, evil has its time and things that are going on here. Yes, there will be destruction. Yes, there will be these other things. But even that is underneath what God is doing. There's a larger purpose. And so to those who are maybe tempted to, to surrender, to give in during persecution, or those who are just absolutely at their wit's end and don't know how to endure, John in the book of Revelation says to them, God is on the throne. Notice there's a, there's a rainbow there in verse 3. Do you notice that? Well, what does a rainbow represent? Promise, yeah. Promise of, of what? But, well, there's lots of different... Actually, there's... So, you said better times. You said... Okay, right. That's the specific promise in that instant. Right. It's used elsewhere in the scripture too. It's picked back up. Of course, it's from... 
where in the book of uh, Genesis, right? What, who, who's the account around? It's Noah, right? But we all know the account, yeah. And so, but there's, there's I think, a broader application of it here, which we sometimes see in the scriptures. It's, it's a sign of mercy, isn't it? I mean, it's a promise of God's mercy after a, remember, a terrific judgment. When you think about that, everyone on earth is killed and judged by God, except for this little family in a boat. That was a big boat. But you think about that. The whole of the earth is slate white clean. It's a, it's a new creation. I mean, you realize that with, with, with Noah. This is a new creation. God's starting fresh. Y'all are the new Adam and Eves. Here you go. And so there, there's this sign here of, of mercy through judgment that although judgment, we're going to see a lot of it. We're going to see a lot of judgment. We're going to see God ultimately bringing his hand against his enemies. And yet, there is mercy through the judgment. As we go through this, we'll get into some of the debates later about, oh, are God's people there through all of this? Or are they there through part of it? Or what does this look like? And, and we'll try to untangle some of that as we have time. But the point is, is, is there is a sense in which even now we endure some of that. Um, there is mercy through judgment. So, so many little things in here we could, we could miss very easily. Verse 4, we get to uh, the 24 elders. Who, who are they? Well, we're not sure. We're not certain who these 24 elders are, but I'll give you a couple of likely possibilities. Honestly, I think it has to be one of these two. And, and as we read through next week, God willing, as we get into chapter 5, we'll see more of this. But basically, these 24 elders in verse 4 are either angelic beings, which tends to be the more popular interpretation. Most, most commentators throughout history, even, have seen them as angelic beings. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, or it could be that they are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, which again, that number 24, anytime you see like 12s, 12, 24, 144, any factor of 12, there's biblical significance to that. Just like if you see three, just like if you see seven, John, as, a, this, as an apocalyptic book, is using these numbers with, with some care here. But that number 12 is the 12 tribes of Israel, right? There's another 12 that we see in, in the New Testament. What, are, what is it? The apostles, yeah, the disciples become the apostles, right? And so we see that Jesus even says to his disciples who become the apostles, he says that you will be sitting on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he even uses that language. I'm inclined to think that it very well could be that this is those two groups, basically the, tw the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, and the apostles ultimately representing God's people throughout history. Part of the reason that people have thought it could be angelic beings is because they don't speak of themselves when they speak about God's redemption. They always speak in the third person, which I think is interesting. Um, and so they're almost spectators of this. So it could be that they're angelic beings. Uh, we'll go on to number five, but any questions or thoughts on that? There'll be a few times where I'm just going to have to tell you we're not certain, and that's okay. Uh, verse five here we get to, don't think that as we look at the beauty in verses 2 through 3, that that could ever be taken without what we find in verse 5. So look there with me. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings. I even think about this with those who are in the Gulf Coast right now experiencing this awful storm. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were, set, were uh, burning seven torches. So on he goes then to, to, to articulate and go on in verse 6. So this is, this is the most astounding clap of thunder. I don't want to do it by my mic. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to. 
Um, flashes of lightning radiating around. So in other words, this is a terrifying scene of what they're experiencing. So they went from the beauty and the glory to then terror and fear. And, and that's, that's intentional here. That they, when we see God, we see both. God is beautiful. He is majestic. He is glorious. And yet he is mighty. Always mighty. Always holy. Always awe-inspiring. The beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of God. Why do we fear God? Not because, oh, no, I'm afraid he's going to hit me. No, because he is so awe-inspiring. It's an amazing scene. We, we never see anyone encounter God in the scriptures that does it casually, like, oh, there's God. Hey, God, how's it going? No, it's always astounding. There's, there's something very profound about it. And so that's that scene. So as we take verses 2 and 3, we must remember verse 5 is there with it. This is that same scene in the throne room. And again, this offers comfort to the persecuted church, people who are imprisoned for their faith, who have their property stripped from them for, for their faith, who are beaten for their faith, who have their scriptures stolen and burned. And so, so this mighty God that sits here on this throne stands behind them. Have you ever found yourself in, in sort of a fearful position until you found out that you had a lot of support behind you? Kind of give you a backbone? Maybe you're at work and you're, you know, you're having issues and you find out your boss has got your back and you're like, I'm good now. You know, whatever it is, maybe it's in your family, maybe there's a the squabble, whatever it is. When you find out that you have some behind you, if you, if you are, are in, a, in a predicament and yet you find out that one who is powerful is behind you, isn't that like so often like the end of the movie? Turns out some guy who has a lot of power ends up sort of backing them up. It's that feeling that the mighty God of, of heaven stands behind them. Vindication is coming. So he's going to say to them, you, you, you don't see it now. You feel beat up now. You feel weak now. But vindication is coming. Hang in there. As we get to verses 6 and 8, we get some more uh, of a sort of bizarre scene, right? Uh, the four living creatures. And when we get to this point, we say, now this is what Revelation is really about, right? These bizarre creatures with eyes all over themselves and all these different things. Well, we'll take a minute to, to try to understand, kind of to make sense out of these apocalyptic images. But the key here is, is actually quite clear. Look at verse 8, the very end of verse 8. And day and night, these are those, those, those creatures, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so these, these creatures, as fascinating and bizarre as they are, they never cease to worship God, the one who is on the throne. Again, going back to that, that scene of those who enter into the presence of God, those who are privileged to behold God's beauty, they can only worship him. I mean, there's no other posture. And we see that ultimately when they, they fall down before God's face. Actually, we're going to see that here in a moment. But we see that other times. This awe-inspiring experience. Uh, th th there's nothing more appropriate than that. It's just, a, as a creature, looking at the Creator, it's our response to worship. That's what He made us for. And so as I say that, the other thing that we have to realize is there is nothing more fulfilling for us. We think that worshiping ourselves and filling ourselves Will, will make us feel good, ultimately just to be empty. 
wanting more. We try to satisfy ourselves more. We try to feed ourselves more and more and more. And it just ultimately becomes this endless battle of emptiness, of vanity, because we weren't created for that. And that's why people in our society who try to live that way, it's about me satisfying myself, uh, filling my own desires. Ultimately, it becomes an empty, it's a a losing game. But 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 to worship God as we were created to, there's nothing more fulfilling. The four living beings that we see are, are definitely an echo of Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10. If we had time, we can go look at those. But you might be familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. This is also an echo of Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see the, the angelic beings with six wings, right? And I say angelic beings because well, we're not quite sure if they're angels or what kind of angels they are. It's a lot of mystery surrounding angels in the Bible. We actually don't know a lot about angelic hierarchy. We know that there is one because we see leading angels and we see those who are servants to leaders and and we we know there's an archangel. So we we know a few little things, but God has chosen not to reveal those things to us. And ultimately they're his messengers, his workers. But in Isaiah chapter six, those angels, those angelic beings, seraphim, even seraphim and and, um, cherubim, we'll talk about that in a minute. Ultimately, we don't even know exactly what those mean. Um, but in Isaiah 6, they say this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That was one of the first verses that we had our kids memorize as we went through a catechism with them. And so, so again, um, notice that, well, even before I get to my next comment. So, for instance, um, the seraphim and the, the cherubim here, for instance, and what we see uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 is that they have the wings and so we usually picture angels with wings. Well, only the seraphim and cherubim are said to have wings. When we see other angels only called angels, we actually never see them depicted with wings. So we're assuming some of this stuff. A lot of it honestly comes from pop culture, paintings, and art, and things like that. Uh, and that's, that's natural. Um, but somehow, these are probably sort of your high-level angels of some sort. But clearly, some sort of heavenly beings. And it's interesting that angels have... Uh, bodies, but they're spiritual bodies. They're not physical bodies like ours in some sense. And I'll avoid the rabbit trail, the rest of that. But all that to say, um, there's a lot of mystery surrounding angels in in, in the scriptures. But notice that these are similes. As as we go through there, look at there, in the verses, uh, you know, 6, 7, 8, verse 7, one creature is like a lion. One creature is like an ox. The third has the face like a man. The fourth is, is like an eagle in flight. So these are similes. It's not saying that one is an eagle, one is a lion. John's doing the best that he can to describe what he's seeing. Um, had he been from South America, he might have said, one is like an anaconda, one is like a panther. You know, he's describing using animals that he knows. Um, we can go through some specifics of, okay, what's the significance of the lion and so on. And I think there's probably something to that. But he's describing these fantastic creatures that he's seeing here. But as we get down, what's really clear once we get down to verses 9 through 11 is this picture, again, of resounding worship in heaven. They declare, look at verse 11, worthy are you. So we first saw it with the elders, now with the creatures. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So they declare here, that God is worthy of their worship. 
and he alone is worthy of their worship. And if we have to pause for a while and go, why is this? Why is God so worthy of this? Well, then just look at the next part of that, that verse there, that, that last clause. He's the creator. For you created all things. You realize God is the only thing that exists that was not created? And even then, if I wanted to sort of twist your brain a little bit, I can say God's not a thing, so he actually, all things were created, but God is not a thing ultimately. But the whole point is that everything that exists, to use you know, how we would normally speak about this, He's the only one that is eternal, the only one who's not created. Angels, demons, people, planets, stars, all created. Created for his own glory, ultimately. And it says there at the very end, and by your will they existed. So it's because God wanted to. Why did God create? Because he wanted to. For his own glory, ultimately, because he wanted to. And they continue to exist only because he wants them to. If somehow God ceased to exist, the universe would collapse and crumble on itself. Even that is a strange thing to think about. Because of course he could not exist. He could not not exist. Everything existed as his. Uh, one commentator, Robert Plummer, says this. The whole scene at the throne in verses 9 through 11 communicates God's terrifying, beautiful holiness. So let me, so let me ask you, and this is where I want us to conclude... Does this scene that we match, and we've kind of, you know, zoomed right through it, right? Um, you know, the, the frightening part, the beautiful part, the creatures, all the strangeness of all this. Uh, quite exotic, isn't it? Does this match what we usually think about when we think about God? I mean, is this how your friends and, and your neighbors and your community, especially those who would, would profess to believe in God, Maybe they're church members, maybe they're Christians, maybe they're not, but, but most of your neighbors would say, yeah, I believe in God. I mean, even today, about 90% of Americans say they believe in God. Is this, is, this, is this usually what they would think about when we talked about God? By and large, I would say absolutely not. Now, there's not one view that I would say they actually all believe in this. No, there's a whole diversity, depending on one's background, depending on one's age, generation, all those things are going to vary. But this is the God of the Bible. And this is not just the, the God in Revelation. This is the God in Genesis. This is the God in Judges. This is the God in Matthew. This is the God in Joel. Joel. This is the God of the Bible. This is the only God that exists. And so whether it's God as sort of permissive grandfather who just wants me to be happy and fulfilled, that God doesn't exist. He just doesn't. Or it's the angry God who simply hates everyone and kind of wants the people to, to burn and ultimately has no compassion and is basically just sort of an angry, dark being up there. He doesn't exist either. Or if it's some other strange mixture of those or whatever it is, those gods don't exist. The God of Islam does not exist. The millions of gods that the Hindus worship don't exist. The God that most atheists critique does not exist. This is the God of the Bible. And it's this God who gives us hope through adversity. You know, if our God is just kind of a big us up there trying to do the best that he can, what hope does that give us? wouldn't give me any hope. I'll tell you, I'd be terrified of what's going to happen on November 4th if I didn't believe in this God. But I do. I'd be terrified as we look at a, at a nation that is more polarized than it has been since the American Civil War. And I don't say that as hyperbole. I would be terrified. But I do believe in this God. And so I don't fear. I'm concerned. I'm very concerned. But I don't fear. 
And so as we look at a world that it sometimes is, is at war with itself and is compromised and we, we fear and we wonder and there's so many questions in our minds, this is the God that we cling to. This is the God that's on the throne. Always. He doesn't take vacations. He doesn't ever mess up. He doesn't ever forget us. He knows our needs and he is near. It's this God that ultimately we hold to and it's this God that we offer to others for hope. So as, as we as we seek to sort of dispel these other notions of God, of false gods ultimately, even if they spell it G-O-D and it's a Christian God. No, no, no. If it's not this God, then it's some false God. And so it's this God that we hold out and say, no, no, there is hope. There is mercy in judgment. He knows his people. He has a plan. Ultimately, as we get to chapter 5 next week, we'll get to see the lamb who is on the throne, the one who ultimately gave his life who shed his blood to redeem us out of this mess of a world, to create a new world for us and the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the God we worship. That's the God that when we sing songs on Sunday, this is the God that we're worshiping. So our Sunday worship should be radiant. It should not be dull. This is the God that we pray to when we're exhausted at the end of the day. This is the God that we come to. This is the God that we come to when we lose a loved one. This is the God that we offer to our neighbors who without this God will ultimately be under his wrath if not for the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as we read through Revelation, that's what we're seeing. Yeah, there's lots of interesting, weird things. And if you have questions later, we can always kind of pick through and kind of make sense out of some more of this. But at the end of the day, it's quite clear this is the God of the Scripture. And this is the God who reigns on his throne. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are on your throne I thank you, God, that you not only created all that exists, but, Lord, you're sovereign over it, and you are working it toward your ends. Lord, we, we so often don't know how those things are going to work out exactly, and we wonder, and yet, God, we trust you. And, Lord, your people waited patiently under the old covenant, and you sent your son in the fullness of time. And, Lord, I pray that you would grant us trust to know that you will send him again in the fullness of time to come and return and to take us to be with you. Lord, I pray, give us uh, the desire, Lord, to share this good news with our neighbors, with our family members, with our friends. Lord, I pray that we would not settle for a weak God, that we would not settle for a God who is merely one of us, that we would not settle for a God that is of our own imaginations, but rather God, the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself to us. It is to you we pray. It is to you that we praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great night.